All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today uh, we have our, a guest back with us, uh, Jeff Coulter, our corn agronomist at the University of Minnesota Extension. And, uh, and we wanted to visit with Jeff today uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of some pre-harvest things to consider uh, when it comes to corn. And so, uh, Brad, did you want to start off and, uh, and ask Jeff something? Well, it, it, it's been a, a fairly normal and decent growing season, and we really aren't uh, necessarily encountering any great issues, at least particularly where I'm located at uh, uh, geographically. But um, with the economics being the way they are, I guess I'm hearing a lot of uh, chatter among the, the farmers I've been talking to about just simply leaving the crop out in the field uh, to dry uh, just to save cost and and uh because again it's i mean it's just barely into october here and and uh there seems to be plenty of time with not a lot of stress and so in the past i know when we've left crop out in the field uh, uh for extended periods of time uh this issue of phantom yield loss uh, uh tends to rear its head and so jeff i guess uh uh, wouldn't mind a little conversation or discussion about just what that phenomena is, at least as best as we can tell, and and whether that's something that producers should be concerned about if they're thinking about leaving their corn uh, out in the field just to air dry naturally. Sure, yeah. So uh, during this last week of September and that first week of October, the corn should dry about a half to three quarters of a percentage point per day. And uh, one of the issues that has been brought up in the past has been this phantom yield loss thing. And that's this um, yield loss that occurs when the crop is just left out in the field. Um, and there, it hasn't been really well understood about why it occurs. Um, it's, been, it's been a noticeable amount of yield loss that occurs, but uh, I think what it really is due to is uh, stock roll shelling losses uh, on the combine uh, during the harvest. The corn is drier uh, when it's harvested later, therefore the uh, stock roll shelling losses would be a little bit higher. Uh, the idea behind the phantom yield loss thing though is also that these are live, these kernels are live organisms that are respiring and, and as they're left out in the field they're utilizing energy to, you know, uh, maintain their what they need to survive and due to that um, their mass is going to shrink a little bit but uh, and that that's partially true we know that if we take seeds and we put them in storage and we store them for a long amounts of time that they will get slightly smaller but uh, I think the bigger issue in reality is these uh, harvest losses you're just simply harvesting and that's drier and when you harvest corn that's drier, there's greater potential for loose kernels to be lost at the header. So Jeff, uh, what kind of percentages are we talking about in the years that we've seen this show up? Uh, uh, what, uh, what have we seen in the past as far as uh, uh, percentage or, or the bushels per acre and reduction and so forth? So if a farmer wants to try and do the math and say, uh, worst case scenario, if this happens, is it a decent trade-off for what I would have spent on drying fuel, or is it a case where uh, after it happens you say, boy, I wish I pulled it all in wet and dried it? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is, you know, it has an interesting name, phantom yield loss. 
But in reality, what I think it is almost primarily due to is harvest losses at the header. And I think that, you know, it's been about five bushels per acre or less. Um, it's been variable. There's also other issues, you know, if you harvest the field at two different moisture levels and you, you measure it, um, you know, was the yield monitor and everything calibrated properly. So lots of considerations, but if the corn is standing good and if you're not too concerned about uh, stock roll shelling losses during harvest, um, you know, I think it's okay to leave it sit out there a little while. You know, we've we've all seen that when we've been doing ride-alongs, either harvesting a project or maybe just uh, harvesting some corn. And you know, when you get excessively dry uh, corn at harvest, the when the ears hit the deck, you'll see them kind of shatter. And the like you're saying, Jeff, you'll lose some of those kernels inevitably to the ground, and and so that can be a, a pretty big issue. Um, well, and, I, and this isn't. Uh, I know, Jeff, you're not an ag engineer, but. Uh, uh, from what I've seen from the years that I've pulled, uh, uh, we had uh, exceptional weather during pollination this year, and we've got kernels all the way to the tip, and some of those kernels uh, way up on the tip of the year are pretty small, and so uh, it is uh, sort of asking a lot of the combine to pull in the normal kernels and then have these little things uh, uh, that are out on the tip and, and get those recovered too without an excessive amount of trash being saved also. Yeah, good point, Brad. A lot of what I've seen indicates that once the grain moisture drops to around 24 to 22%, that's kind of an optimum time to start harvesting. And it, when it gets into the upper teens, you know, then we can really expect uh, increased header losses and things like that. So uh, just something to be mindful here as we move forward. Well, on this, this week, uh, soybean harvest kind of slowed down a little bit here with it being being a little cooler and damper. Uh, but it looked like uh, at the end of last week we were going to set some some pretty good pace towards uh, towards harvest and be able to get into the cornfields uh, relatively soon. And something I always think about, uh, Jeff, at least when we look back at the last two years, is that conditions in fall, weather conditions can switch around on us and and it can be tough to to get heavy machinery into the field to to do harvest and uh you know we can be competing with the snowfall and all sorts of uh hurdles in terms of uh getting harvest done and so it's it's you know maybe maybe thinking back at looking back at uh the past it's uh, kind of take your opportunities when you're given them and you know the other thing i would say is uh the moisture has uh particularly toward the end of the summer we've actually gotten uh adequate to ample moisture i wouldn't necessarily go so far to say as excessive because we're not seeing a lot of ponding and standing water like we have in some years but uh it's clear that there's a lot of moisture in the soil profile and so i i do think farmers do need to be a little uh, cognizant of the potential for creating compaction problems uh because you know in a lot of falls or a typical fall um, there's a moisture deficit, uh, particularly in that top uh, six inches to a foot, uh, that allows you to uh, to traffic uh, fields pretty hard without a lot of negative impacts. This year, uh, there's a fair amount of moisture, and so it is something to watch. Yeah, good point, Brad. And one thing that I think is very interesting is that about 80% of the compaction occurs on the first trip across the field. So we can kind of use this to our advantage during harvest and uh, by thinking about, you know, creating traffic lanes and 
you know, driving the grain cart down old combine tracks and headlands rather than at a diagonal across the field uh, when it's possible. And, you know, and I mentioned earlier that, that uh, we're, we're still tracking kind of ahead uh, as far as time-wise. Uh, maybe uh, this is a good year to just be patient and, and do all your unloading out at the end of the field and, and uh, you know, trying not to do quite so many tracks across the field with grain carts or particularly uh, this might not be a good year at all to be running the semi through the field. Don't see a lot of guys do that, but some people do. Uh, and just uh, avoid those issues just through a little patience. So, Brad, it, you know, I don't know if, if, if you're the person to address this, but if we do end up in situations where we end up with compaction or creating some pretty significant compaction, some of those problems can carry forward for quite some time. What kind of, what kind of time frame do we look at as far as uh, how, how long compaction issues can, can exist if we do kind of ignore you know, maybe best practices and, and, and get out there when it's too wet and, and, and do some of these things that are going to cause a heavy load. Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing is most farmers look at mitigating compaction with tillage, and I think the thing that's important to remember about tillage is it is, uh, it is an artificial presence in the soil, so a real soil structure would be caused by, uh, by root and, and organic matter in the soil, and uh, that would give you some buffer between the soil particles. Tillage is just simply fracturing the soil particles and introducing air. And so as such, uh, tillage, when it's wet, of course, doesn't perform that function uh, because it tends to smear and not introduce air. And so for one thing, uh, probably not looking at wanting to mitigate that with tillage. Uh, you know, if you think you cause problems in a wet year, you can't come back and till it wet and think that that uh, took care of any of the problems. There was a study done at the SROC uh, in Wasika back in the uh, late 70s, early 1980s uh, with uh, Jim Swan, who was with the, um, or Ward Voorhees, uh, I should say, uh, who was with ARS up in Morris, and they did some, some heavy loads, uh, axle loads on some plots. And they found that the, the effect, the yield reduction, tended to go away after three or four years, but the problem was... Uh, every time it was excessively wet or excessively dry, uh, those conditions reset themselves. And, and so they had some pretty bad yield losses in those plots in 1987 and 88 when uh, there was a drought. And again in 1993 uh, uh, when it was excessively wet, uh, same thing kind of recreated itself, uh, even though the uh, in general the yield uh, losses had been mitigated a decade earlier and so we can see some pretty long-term significant issues i think uh, this era with the popularity and and uh, the um, trendiness and maybe even i should say of cover crops uh, that's probably a lot better management strategy to introduce real soil structure instead of just going in and ripping it deep uh, uh, might have a lot more positive long-term implications. And so if you think you caused some compaction problems, it may be uh, to your advantage to think about uh, how I could get a cover crop in there and established and get some root growth through that zone uh, instead of just uh, when's the next time I can drag a lot of steel through it deep. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, say another thing... Um people often talk about or we think about Jeff uh, is prioritizing fields so what are some of the things you want to maybe do uh, before harvest here get out to, to check fields to kind of maybe prioritize fields based on risk of um, 
lodging or, or other issues. Um, what are some of the things that you think about when it comes into that? Well, and I, I'm going to add to that, Ryan. Uh, we had a stretch here that kind of came through the Mankato area. It was south of me where I live personally, but not very far away. There was a storm with some really uh, high uh, uh, straight-line winds, 80-mile-an-hour winds, that we saw some pretty extensive down corn in the middle of summer. Uh, most of those fields came back, and you can't really see that right now. They they sprung back up, but the you know that that kind of builds on your question: uh, Is there a risk that some of these fields are going to come back down again uh, uh, once they've uh, they black layered and then they stand out there for a week or two? So uh, that that does that also add into the some of the thinking, Jeff? Absolutely, uh, those would be fields that I would really want to keep an eye on, eye on, and potentially uh, harvest first if possible. Things that I generally think about, uh, in addition to that, are things that are going to affect the stock quality. So corn on corn, that has greater risk of stock rots. Uh, in addition, if you've got a field that has large ears, but then at the same time experience some late season drought stress, uh, that can result in weak stalks because those large ears are a strong sink for carbohydrates from the stalk. So. The carbohydrates move from the stalk to the ear preferentially, results in a weak stalk that's susceptible to lodging. In addition, if you have a field that has potassium deficiency, that could be a field that's at risk of poor stalk quality as well because potassium is important for uh, uh, structure of the plant and, and keeping it standing. Um, in addition, high population, which results in thin stalks, or if you had hail or corn borer tunneling in the stalks, those also can affect the stalk quality. Uh, hail oftentimes, uh, you know, it looks like it's just uh, reducing the leaves, but if you cut into the stalks, oftentimes you'll see that the hailstones have penetrated that, st that stalk rind and can result in weak stalks. So those are some things to think about. Uh, but what you can do now is uh, if you've got time, go out into the fields, assess the stalk quality, uh, first look at, you know, what percentage of the plants are, are lodged right now or broke below the ear. Uh, and then on the remaining plants, you can assess the quality of those plants simply by pushing at the stalk level about 10 inches to the side. Or you could even pinch uh, the base of the stalk uh, in the first internode above the brace roots. You could also cut a few stalks open near the ground in that first internode above the brace roots. And if you're seeing hollow stalks, or stalks that are breaking when you're pinching, or stalks that are breaking off when you're pushing them to the side at your level. You know, those are fields that are potentially at risk of high stock lodging if we get some um, heavy winds later in the season. So generally, uh, fields that are exhibiting 10 to 15% or more of stalks that are either lodged or are, are breaking or are hollow, you know, these are fields that are at very high risk and we would want to be harvesting them as soon as feasible. Jeff, there were some uh, uh, areas in, in uh, west central Minnesota uh, that had some pretty extensive hail damage here also in the middle of summer. Uh, beyond whether there's a stock quality issues, is there anything uh, that, that producers need to be looking for with the year with the grain itself? Uh, probably not. Uh, but, it, you know, when you're out in the field, it's definitely a good idea to strip back some ears and look at those ears. Uh, generally, uh, in years when we have poor grain quality, 
that that tends to be in years that are have prolonged wet conditions in the fall prior to harvest. However, uh, it is possible that that hail could result in in some ear rots. So uh, one may want to uh, strip back some ears and or the husks and look at the ears and see what how they're developing. And in fields where you do notice a problem, where there are ear rots going on, uh, those are fields are fields that one would want to harvest on the early side as well and then dry that grain to below 15% moisture. And the reason for that is because if we leave that grain out in the field, that ear rot can continue to grow and uh, cause more damage to the, to the crop quality. So, uh, but the fungi that are responsible for those ear, ear rots typically stop growing at around 15% moisture. So if we can if we can get the crop harvested and get it to below 15% moisture, then that shouldn't be a, an issue that continues to grow. Any thoughts that uh, we may see issues with mycotoxins in grain under that circumstance if uh, producers are keeping their grain and using it for livestock feed? Yeah, I would say the, the same situation. Um, you know, pull the strip the husks back, look at the grain and. If uh, one's noticing a problem, harvest on the early side and get it dried down. Um, and then if, if it's really severe, um, one could send a sample in for mycotoxins uh, and, and look at that. Another thing to think about is to keeping the grain separated. Uh, grain that has potential quality issues, keeping that separated from higher quality grain. And uh, if one's worried about it or if mycotoxin levels are high, than uh, making sure that you're only feeding the higher quality grain. So Jeff, a, cu a couple of things are coming to mind here. How big of a role, when we talk about stock quality in fall, uh, from your experience, uh, how big of a role does uh, variety selection or varietal differences within a, even a given farm, uh, you know, if you think of some of the work you've done, how big of a role does that play in stock quality considerations? I think it's pretty substantial. Uh, it pro I think it has a large effect. Um, just as large of an effect as weather and some of these other factors that we've talked about. So, yeah, definitely uh, some hybrids are predisposed to having greater stock lodging than others. And uh, when we think about uh, hybrid selection for the, the next year, you know, the big things that we like to try to select for are first off, high, yield high yield and high yield stability, uh, having a, a, a hybrid that dries down good, and then also having uh, good standability. Those are really the, the key three agronomic factors that we want to be thinking about. So earlier then you mentioned, uh, you mentioned things to consider when you know going out to look at fields as far as what might be influencing stock quality and variety being one of those. And then you mentioned also some tests we could do to, to assess the quality um, in the field. and. And then you indicated that, you know, if, if we're seeing issues to 10 to 15% of the plants, um, there's a, uh, that's going to be a field to sort of move to the front of the line, prioritize for harvest. What kind of sampling do you do, you know, in the field? So what's a, what's a good, you know, let's say I've got a, a 80 acre field. Uh, how many samples does a person want to take in a field like that to, to assess stock quality? Yeah, I may go into a few different parts of the field, uh, depending on where I can get into it. And just as I'm walking in the field, just start pushing on plants at ear level as you're walking along. See how brittle they are, how much they break over. 
Um, if you got time, you could also cut a few plants off and see how see if the stalks are hollow or not. Um, you know, you, you, the more plants you look at, the better. Uh, at minimum, one would probably want to, you know, look at 10 plants in a, a few different places of the field. But, you know, it's very easy to just walk down the field and push plants at your level and see if they break off or not. And if one did that at, you know, three different places of the field at least and, you know, pushed on 10 to 20 plants, that could easily be done very quickly. And uh, I think you'd get a pretty good indication of uh, what the standability is out there in the field. So, Brad, something for you here. Uh, you know, late July, August, uh, early August, uh, there were a handful of people that started to see some nitrogen deficiency in corn. And, uh, and I know Jeff didn't mention that as, a, as an issue with the stock quality. But what, what, do you, what did you see out there for nitrogen this year and, and how the crop did or how we did with fertilizing the, the crop in general? Well, I think those uh, deficient spots tended to be very isolated. I did not see widespread issues uh, around the state, particularly toward the end of summer. Uh, it was, uh, the, the temperature was sufficient, the moisture was sufficient. We saw good mineralization of nitrogen out of soil. Organic matter really didn't see a lot of uh, nitrogen deficiency symptoms showing up in crop. Uh, I, I did see it occasionally, and I think uh, uh, places where it showed up warrant uh, further investigation uh, regarding whether you had some root issues out there. So, uh, you know, that simply being that the nitrogen was there, but the crop wasn't able to get it. Uh, or if there was some kind of uh, uh, extraordinary circumstance that led to uh, nitrogen deficiency. I know, Ryan, uh, you and I had a conversation about a field particularly where it was showing up on the hilltops. Uh, uh, that's an area where you're likely to have a lower percentage of organic matter and probably less uh, supplied uh, by mineralization. And so in that particular case, uh, uh, we might want to take a look at uh, uh, the total amount of nitrogen that was supplied or whether there was some other extreme weather event that uh, led to uh, losing some of that applied nitrogen. Um, you know, it's it's a topic for a podcast on a different day, and actually we covered this a little bit in our nutrient management podcast here about a week or so ago. But it's worth noting that Dan Kaiser uh, recently added the uh, nitrogen rate uh, trials, the more recent ones, into the nitrogen rate calculator and we are continuing to see our um, optimum nitrogen rates creep up. There's not this huge difference, but they keep going up uh, a little bit and a little bit as we add more data into the database. And so uh, if you saw nitrogen deficiency problems uh, here this, this last growing season, it's probably worth uh, investigating whether your overall nitrogen rate that you applied was adequate uh, and uh, maybe having uh, some conversations uh, uh, with uh, with some of us at the university or or some of your agronomists ab about that too. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to be monitoring their yields with uh, the combine yield monitor, um, and uh, I th I think that's something we need to talk a little bit about. Um, do you guys want to talk about the importance of calibrating your combine yield monitor? Or yeah, definitely, Ryan. That's a that's a good thing to mention. Um, I, I think the main thing to remember is that yield monitors are estimating grain yield based on the grain flow rate and grain moisture. So 
we want to properly calibrate them to get good estimates of, of our yields, especially if we're going to be using that yield data to make variable rate decisions or decisions about crop inputs um, or making comparisons among hybrids, those kinds of things. Uh, one key thing on the yield monitor calibration is it's important, if possible, to uh, have multiple calibration loads when, when doing this. Um, it, and this is done to represent a range in the grain flow rates that are expected in your fields. Uh, this can be done by a, a range of different ways, but uh, one way that's common is to harvest strips of different widths, such as one quarter, one half, three fourths, and a full head, header width. And by doing so, you're getting differing rates of grain flow going through the header. Yeah, I know that's a that's a real important thing to kind of look at uh, look at the equipment you've got and kind of follow some of the manufacturer's recommendations. You know, I know Brad, you and I have done a fair number of on-farm projects where we've we've used yield monitor and uh, and have have a little practical experience calibrating this and. You know, we'll run into people that think one load is sufficient, and 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 we know from experience that that just that just isn't sufficient. Even if you think you can do it, uh, uh, it it calibrates your monitor a really narrow range of yields or yield values, and uh, what you see then is uh, you know you're going to have an inability to pick up variability and to manage for that in the future, and so it is important to do. Uh, like Jeff was describing, one of the multi-load uh, calibrations, and uh, I know with some of the variable rate nitrogen work we've done on farm, Brad, uh, when we did that and did a kind of a comparison, we could get uh, we could get within a half a percent of what the way wagon was saying with our yield monitor predicted value or estimated value, I should call it. And so, uh, you know, again, that's following that multi multi-load uh, process and. Um, and paying attention to, to to getting that done in an appropriate way. And if this is the kind of fall where we have adequate time to to get harvest done, it wouldn't hurt to to you know focus on that. I think, particularly if you're going to be using that data to make any kind of management decisions in the future, because you know if if you collect garbage data, it's going to be garbage as far as a tool to manage the the field in a different way. That's really the key, Ryan. Is if if you if if you are trying to make decisions based on information contained in a yield map, then you do need to take the time to calibrate because then uh, a few bushels, one way or another, uh, could be the the answer to your question. In which case, you may have lost it by not being properly calibrated. Uh, if if overall your general concern is what's the pattern in this field and i'm just going to set some management zones and i've done this several you know many times in the past maybe it's not quite so important uh but uh but ultimately again if you are specifically trying to answer some questions uh then then in that case you do need to take the time to calibrate that yield monitor and also recognize that the calibration for that's going to be different uh, depending on the moisture in the in the grain, and so if you have some uh, some some big differences in crop in terms of your uh, um, how many day maturity the the corn was, if you had some 95 day and then you had some 110 day, um, you know it's not just simply a matter of uh, uh, adjusting what you do with the corn dryer. If you go from one field to the next because they were next to each other you might find that uh, the yield monitor is going to be off uh, 
uh, from one to the other. Uh, but we've also seen some circumstances, particularly when the crop gets quite dry, uh, late in the year where there can be big differences between the morning and the late afternoon. So uh, um, again, uh, if you're trying to answer questions uh, with that data, you need to be cognizant of that. If you're just simply looking for a pattern across the field, maybe it's not worth your time to stop and do that. But bottom line is just be aware of what you've got for data and quality. Yeah, good point. All right, so uh, going into harvest, cal calibrate your, your yield monitor. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the storage issues with some of the, the ear molds and that. Uh, you know, next then you take the crop off, people start thinking fertilizer, Brad. And, uh, and uh, you know, I don't know if you want to touch on this today, but, uh, or do we do this in another podcast in a week here or so? Yeah, but, you know, there's there'll be this, uh, this push to kind of get back across the ground and do some fertilizer work uh, in fall. And, and we, we've had some pretty significant changes in recommendations yeah, it really depends on what part of the state you're in. Of course, southeast Minnesota, we really haven't looked at doing fall nitrogen applications now for, for decades, and so uh, that's not uh, much, of a, uh, much of a concern there. Uh, for those of you in other parts of the state who say, uh, oh, we can't get all that uh, nitrogen put on in the spring, uh, be aware that southeast Minnesota has been doing it for years and years and years. Uh, it's just simply a matter of uh, knowing what you need to get done and figuring out a way to do it because the ability to do it certainly is out there. Uh, for other parts of the state, uh, I guess uh, um, probably the, the, the main message is that uh, um, while we talk about being pragmatic with our nitrogen decisions based on what the conditions are like, we're at relatively normal to somewhat wet conditions, and so we aren't really looking at varying uh, drastically from what we would consider our typical nitrogen management. There's no great reason uh, this year or uh, extenuating circumstances to cause us to deviate uh, significantly. And I think probably beyond that, it is uh, it is a podcast uh, for another time if we really want to dive into it deeply. Yeah, I think uh, I think I got some ideas rolling around, uh, Brad. I we'll have to do another one here in about a week or two and uh, and address some of those topics. So I think uh, with that, did you guys have anything else you want to talk about in terms of corn harvest and considerations prior to harvest here? Well, I have a couple things, Ryan. You know, during harvest, it's a great opportunity to take some notes on things that one can correct in their fields or with their operations. So, you know, thinking about areas that had poor drainage, severe soil erosion, weed problems, or just realizing some of the inefficiencies or bottlenecks that you're experiencing in logistics, labor, and equipment, and making notes of those things and trying to get those uh, corrected prior to the next growing season. I'll add one to that, Jeff, because uh, um, I know on some of my ground, uh, uh, had conversations with the, the farmer who's renting that property uh, relative to tillage. I think it's also worth taking a note of what the performance was of the tillage practice used in the past year uh, for the sake of, uh, of advising what you do in the future. I know uh, uh, we had a situation where we did some no-till soybeans a couple of years ago, and then there was some conversation about uh, did we need to go in and do some extra tillage 
And in reality, if you went out and looked, the corn stalks that were uh, there from the year before had pretty well melted away. And so uh, it's also kind of important to pay attention to what, what uh, how well your tillage performed uh, just for the sake of kind of advising uh, uh, what you do uh, going forward and, and uh, whether you need to make any adjustments. or uh, I, think, I think tillage is something that's on a lot of farmers' minds as far as uh, potentially wanting to reduce that or cut uh, cut the expense in diesel fuel if they think they can do that without lowering yield then this is a pretty good year to be paying attention to those things all right well we want to uh, thank uh, jeff coulter for being on today this has uh, been another installment of the uh, gopher coffee shop podcast thanks for listening mm-hmm.